Let's pray. Well, Father, because of the regenerating work of the Spirit, we are a new creation. We are salt and light. That's what we are. And being salt, being light bearers, we bear responsibility, just as being image bearers of our Creator comes with it weight and responsibility. We are what we are, Lord, and we pray that what you have created us to be for the sake of this world and for your glory, that that would come out, Lord. So help us to understand your word better and help us to live according to your, your instruction, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Well, this, uh, this section of Jesus' sermon, as we've kind of already talked about, it's not randomly you know, placed in the text, but it follows logically really from uh, verse 10 through 12. Uh, verse 10 and 11 tells us that believers, they will be persecuted, they will be slandered, falsely accused for living righteously in Christ Jesus. That is the implication of the text. And, and you know, if that wasn't good enough for you, uh, Jesus had said a number of times that a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Um, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Uh, Jesus expected us to be persecuted. Uh, the normal Christian life is a life that endures to some degree a level of persecution. Um, if you've shared the gospel in public uh, to a relative, a friend, a coworker, um, you've probably experienced a degree of resistance, maybe some ridicule. Um, I have thought I was going to get punched one time sharing the gospel, um, but when I stood up, I was about 12 inches taller than the individual, so they backed down. Uh, I wasn't standing up, I don't think, to fight him. I was just standing up because it's easier to take a punch that way. And, uh, but then he backed down, and, uh, and I wasn't being mean to him, I assure you. I can tell that story another time. A very lovely local gentleman who owns an establishment here. I don't, I'm not going to use his name, but um, persecution. It's, it just seems to be uh, something expected from Christ. It is to be the normal Christian life. Uh, it's the way things, he just knew where they would be. Well, if persecution is the consequence for living righteously for Jesus, you can imagine the temptation that each of us would face to tone down our righteousness a little or be less vocal about our faith when persecution comes on strong. If righteousness in Christ Jesus indeed increases persecution, as we're promised, we might be tempted to tone ourselves down a little bit, to be a little more quiet in order that we might soften the blow of persecution. Uh, there's temptation there. I believe that, as we'll look at in a little bit, um, not just individuals, not just churches, but institutions that were inspired by Christ have all toned it down in order to avoid persecution. And the result is always bad, always bad. Historically, it has done nothing but deteriorate and diminish the proclamation of the gospel and the force that the church was meant to be in the world. Jesus says that persecution is not an, an option for his people to diminish their righteousness. We cannot use that. He says, as my disciples, you are salt and light. You were created anew. Your new creation, Paul says, through regeneration of the Spirit and with the intention, God's intent, that you would emit something good that would both enrage and rescue the lost. The world responds differently, don't they? They respond differently. 
But what we have, what God has given us, will both enrage the lost and will rescue them. We were created in Christ Jesus, Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, for good works, for holiness unto righteousness, to represent Christ in the world, to be ambassadors who take the light of the gospel into a world that has been darkened by sin. Uh, how many of you guys been, have been in extreme darkness and then had light shined in your eyes? It's offensive, isn't it? Uh, the way that my children test a light out is they say, Dad, is this bright? <laughs> so you know how I test a light now? Hey, kids, is this bright? And I get one of those powerful LED lights. Yeah, almost knocks them over. Paybacks, that's right. <laughs> We're ambassadors. To avoid what we are would require that we deny what we are. And really, it would be forsaking our loyalty to Christ because not, to not execute righteousness in our world is a matter of obedience, isn't it? Now, I think that this is why also we should encourage people to count the cost of following Jesus. We should warn them of the risk. I know people say, no, you shouldn't do that. It will scare them. Well, if that is the case, why did Jesus do it all the time? I know you want to follow me, but I just want you to understand something. It's going to require that you deny yourself. It's going to require that you take up your cross. It's, and by the way, I don't have a place to lay my head. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has none of that. And Jesus was constantly telling people, this is what's at risk. This is what's going to be demanded of you. And the truth is that the people... Um, the better they are prepared, the better they are for what is coming. And Jesus expects his people to be on display for the world. He's created us for that, to be on display, not just our example, but our words. We're on display. And that's by, by divine ordination. You were meant to be on display for the world. That's just, if you don't like it, it's too bad. <laughs> it's just God has ordained it. And just as Christ came into the world to be presented to the world, to be the light of the world, to bring the gospel, his words, his example, Jesus expects us to continue the work he started, living righteously, serving people, proclaiming truth. Because there is a hope within us that must be shared. We have the truth that saves, should not be hidden. And according to Jesus, if we shine the light, it's going to cost us something just as it cost him everything. But isn't that exciting? Isn't that exciting? How many guys like a little, um, I mean, like a, I tell my wife when my, my boys especially are doing stuff that really CPS should be called. But the truth is if there's no risk, there's no fun. Boys especially have to, it, it has to be higher. It has to be faster. It has to be sharper. It has to be whatever. And it's that risk that turns them on. You know, it, it gets them going. And um, how many of you guys really like that? How many of you guys need to blow something up to feel good? <laughs> okay, all the rednecks are like, me! <laughs> how many of us are turned on by just a little bit of controversy? You liars. <laughs> it's just true. If it's risky, if it's dangerous, it has an appeal to it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Did you guys catch that? Don't mess with her babies. Okay, yeah. The risk. Well, if risk turns you on, go street preach. And you know, the thing is when Jesus, uh, you know, he says when persecution comes, he says, first of all, you're blessed, you're happy. So if you want to be happy, what should you do? 
go find some persecution for the gospel. He says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. In fact, verse 11, uh, where that's stated, is actually the very first imperative that's embedded into the Sermon on the Mount. It's a command to rejoice and be glad. It's the very first command. And it's couched in the context of persecution, of slander, and false accusations. So when you are persecuted, slandered, falsely accused, you are commanded to be happy about it. Not because of it, but in it and through it. Okay? The second imperative is actually found in our section in verse 16 where Jesus says, let your light shine. And they're connected. If you let your light shine, you're going to get persecuted. And then you can be happy. <laughs> okay? Let your light shine even in the face of persecution. Let's look at the text itself. He, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And so begin the difficult sayings of Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. So speaking to those who have been kind of entertaining him for a year, following him, many of them have more recently heard about him, but for about a year now, Jesus has been doing some ministry. This is what he says to them. He's saying this to those that would follow him today. He says, you are the salt of the earth. In his illustration, he's pointing out, you know, the relationship of salt to its purpose, as he says, which is flavor. Salt has a, a, a culinary purpose, and that's why we use it for food. Salt has many other purposes, uses, which are good for illustrations, and many of them are brought into this passage. I'm not sure that that's good, uh, because Jesus uh, just keeps it uh, in the context of our palate, if you will. But he's saying that if, and, and this is a hard saying, if it, salt fails to fulfill its purpose, it is rendered useless and therefore should be thrown out and trampled. You know, so, so too, the disciples of Christ through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit have been created anew and God has given them a divine purpose in this world. They, they haven't been created anew to be passive in this world, to be good for nothing in this world, but to provide something useful for it, something beneficial. Now Jesus presents that purpose to us more clearly without the use of figures of speech and illustrations in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, when he said, he says, boys, listen to me. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That is the same as saying, I'm the commander. I'm the commander in chief. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Making disciples who obey Christ is the purpose that Jesus is addressing here. Our purpose is to obey Christ by making disciples who obey Christ. It's pretty simple, isn't it? That's our calling. But the difficult thing to swallow in Jesus' conclusion in the Sermon on the Mount is regarding those who do not fulfill their purpose. The salt by its, its very nature is salty, so it does not actually lose its saltiness. But if it did, what value would it have? What would its purpose be? The regenerate person by nature, because of the spirit dwelling inside of him, obeys Christ and is in the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. But if they didn't, what use would they be? What use would they be? In this context, Jesus compares them to what is useless. He says, good for nothing. Instead of making disciples, they need someone to teach them how to be a disciple. 
You see, those who profess Christ but do not obey Christ, you guys are probably not his. They likely have not experienced regeneration. And you know, throughout Jesus' ministry, he was aware of this problem. He constantly addressed those that might associate with him but not really live for him. He knew of the problem. He, he asked some who were following him, he says, why do you call me Lord, but you do not do the things that I say? Luke 6, 46. Isn't that a fun saying? Why do you call me Lord, and you don't do the things that I command you? What's the obvious answer? Because I'm not your Lord. That's the answer, Luke 6, 46. Later in this same sermon, Jesus will say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Matthew 7, 21. That's not even any nicer. Being thrown out and trampled underfoot because of uselessness is equivalent to being excluded from the kingdom. You guys, there are no flavorless people in God's kingdom. It's salty or nothing. That's what Jesus is saying. It's salty or nothing. You're either the salt of the earth or the tread that is trampled. And because of the context in which this is said, persecution does not qualify as a good reason to not be salty. Jesus doesn't make anything easy, does he? I actually think, as I mentioned earlier, that many Christians lack zeal and excitement and joy for the gospel because of the lack of persecution that has resulted from the lack of preaching. We love resistance. It just kind of energizes us. But we got to do that which causes resistance. And nothing like a little salt will do that with the gospel. Yeah. If you want to prime the pump of joy and excitement for the gospel, you got to share. You got to preach the gospel. 514 Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Salt of the earth and light of the world. Now, when light is used in the Bible as a figure of speech, as it is here, it always refers to truth and in some form, what is morally good. And oftentimes, um, the, especially Paul, when he uses the word good, he means morally beautiful. So light is morally beautiful. It's truth that's related to God gospel. Light, as we see in the scriptures, is often opposite, the opposite of evil and moral falsehood. Well, we're the light of the world. And we, like a city built on the top of a hill, cannot be hidden. If indeed we are light, light. If we are, we should not be trying to hide it. We should not hide the hope that is within us. We already said it, it is through regeneration by God's spirit that we become light bearers. We become salt because of that, our lives should be emitting light. This whole, uh, you know, a lit city uh, brings back memories from when I was a kid. How many of you guys have driven through, like, Interstate 80 in Wyoming? I mean, it's crossed the entire state, and you counted, like, three cities. You saw, like, a, a, a jackalope with a sack lunch. <laughs> you know, it's just the cities are so far apart. It's not like here where you can't tell where one city ends and the next one begins. I still don't know the difference between... Centralia and Chehalis, except that the fairgrounds somehow divides them in some way. <laughs> Back home in Wyoming, there isn't much light around, and you can see a small city from a long way away at night. There's, there's no guessing about its location. It's just right there. It meant much to me as a kid because when you travel at night, there's nothing to do. You can't see in the car. You can't see out of the car, so all you want to do is get home. So I always, as we were traveling across Wyoming at night, Guess what I always looked for? The glow on the horizon. Because I knew that the city was close and my misery would soon come to an end. 
the light gave me hope. Light gives hope. Yeah. No way you could hide those places because of the light they emitted in a very dark surrounding. The only city really that can be hidden at night is a ghost town. Why can't you see a ghost town at night? Because it's dead. Because it's dead. And there's a lot of ghost towns in Wyoming. Yeah. The believer possesses a great light and we are surrounded by great darkness. You guys, we should be seen more than ever in this world. There should be no hiding what we are. We should be a beacon to those who wander about in the night, stumbling around. We should be the example by our words, the things we do. Jesus says, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So a city on a hill itself, it cannot be hidden because the light that emits from it. And just as the elevated city cannot be hidden, neither would someone light a lamp and put it under a basket. Um, you guys know that lamps back then had a flame, right? And baskets were made out of like wicker. So unless you wanted to use the basket for kindling, uh, you wouldn't stick that light under it. I actually have a first century lamp uh, that was given to me. It's a little tiny household lamp, and you, you, know, you put oil in it and a wick, and then you light it. And then, of course, as our text says, there was lampstands at the end. They would put it high so that that flame could emit its light farther away. The higher the light, the more light emission. I learned that in my house in remodeling it. Is my, I can palm my ceiling, so it's kind of like a cavern. And as I was doing research for the, how much lighting I need, I was overwhelmed by how much I needed because of how low my ceilings were. And so people come into my house and they're, they're like, there's all kinds of sarcasm because of this. But I just have can lights everywhere. But then you turn them on and you're like, well, that's not that bright. But if they're up another two feet, it would be so brilliant that we'd have to turn half of them or more off. So the higher, the greater the emission light. Jesus says the purpose of light is to give it to everyone so that everyone can see should be placed higher, which is better. Under a basket would be detrimental, not just hiding the light, potentially extinguishing it, or burning yourself. God did not ignite us with the truth of the gospel for us to squander it, but to proclaim it. We might say that we were lit to emit. We were lit to emit. Jesus said, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and whatever you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Matthew 10, 27, in the parable of the banquet, he said, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Luke 14, 23, our lampstand, as it were, are the housetops. It's the highways and the hedges. The housetop is that point in which you can, you know, disperse your voice in a public area. The highways were where we find those from out of town and the hedges are private quarters of the community. That's just about everywhere in a community, isn't it? The locations from which our lamps stand, from where our light should be emitting. It's offered to the world. It should not be squandered in silence. We were lit. And the resistance we encounter in all of these places, the persecution we face, is not a sufficient reason to be quiet, keeping this in context. When we are persecuted for preaching, we should not refrain from it. Jesus says, rejoice in it. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So here's the second imperative in Jesus' sermon. 
Shine, shine, emit your light before men so that man's attention would be drawn to my Father for his glory. That's the motive. The emission of light is a good work that glorifies God. Peter repeats this just in different wording. He says this. He says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. By the word Gentiles here, he means unbelievers. He says, so that when they speak evil against you, or when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. The, the, the whole statement is very interesting. Our Christian conduct should always be righteous. We shouldn't be looking for a private quarter so we can do something unethical. Uh, wherever we are, our lives should be lived in righteousness. And as we said, we, we're on display. The, the unbelieving world is to observe us. God has appointed us to be watched. And he says that we do good works for them to observe he says, so that they would glorify God in the day of visitation. He's talking about the day of judgment. You see, our good works, as Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, is intended to lead people to God, to lead people to God so that we would, they would glorify him. But Peter said, he puts it in, in an eschatological context where it would prepare them for judgment. So that the idea is we do good works and then we, we infuse it with the gospel so that people would get saved as a result of it. And we would be preparing everybody, the whole world, for the judgment. Paul says that his job was to, to teach every man and warn every man that he might present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The point is to get everyone to the judgment safely. So they're in Christ who took judgment for them. Good works. Good works. But you guys, sadly what, is, what happens over time is that good works become an end in themselves. And they are not. They're a matter of obedience to God first, and they should be done for the glory of God, which then truly benefits people. Good works are a God thing that should point people to him. We should never separate God from our good works. We should always be placing him at the forefront. And I want to illustrate this to you so that it makes more sense. History is full of examples of ministries that are inspired by Christ. Actually, they were pioneered and, and ministries of this nature began because of Christianity. They began with a vision that no matter what we do here, the goal is to point people to Christ through various means. The, the establishment of such institutions, these ones I'm about to mention, they followed the advent of Christianity. They were inspired by Christ. Institutions of medicine, education, science, benevolence, orphanages, social justice. I could just go on and on and on. All institutions of good works. Christ inspired the first universities, the first real hospitals, institutions for social justice, human rights, humanitarian aid, benevolence, the protection of children, the elevation of women, the developmentally disabled, the blind, and so forth. Pioneered, championed by the church. But the Christ who inspired people to erect these institutions, he ended up getting in the way of their progress. And Christ was eventually expelled from all of them. You guys, hospitals are the product of Christian theology. You know that. Inspired by Jesus' commands in Scripture and the example he gave as he ministered to the sick and the hurting. But today, hospitals that were once the product of Christian devotion are Christian in name only. Christ got in the way of medicine. Orphanages are the fruit of Christian convictions, but nearly every one of them has been gutted by secularism 
and materialism. Most of them have been reduced to an industry that is nothing more than government-sanctioned human trafficking. Christ got in the way of compassion. Princeton University was once the greatest defender of Christianity in the Western world, especially when it was men like Warfield and Newell and Hodges were at the helm of the school. Christ was king. And everything they taught and everything in every department was fueled. It was infused with Christ. You go to Princeton today and Christ is a byword in the hallways. Christ got in the way of education. Institutions of science, which were all inspired by scripture and men who loved God, are now atheistic and evolutionary. Christ got in the way of science. Benevolent societies, a thing completely unknown before the advent of Christianity, have been corrupted by liberal theology. You guys, when I, when I say benevolent societies, that they were completely unknown before the advent of Christianity, it's a, it's a, that's an understatement. One Roman philosopher said, Romans do nothing for Romans. Romans do nothing for Romans. And then Christianity showed up on the scene and rocked the Roman world, caring for people, the sick. Amazing. The Salvation Army was once a powerhouse of gospel preaching that valued people's salvation above their position in society. And they've all but today said goodbye to Jesus. He got in the way of benevolence. Read the autobiographies and biographies of William Booth and his wife. Really, of his wife. William Booth was a great preacher, but his wife was the powerhouse behind the ministry. She was the brains. She was the conviction. Amazing. Institutions that helped the weak and the vulnerable, the outcasts and marginalized. They came into this world because of Christ. No hint of them before the, the Christian advent. But because they've pushed Christ out, it has corrupted all that they do. And what we call social justice today is fostered victimhood. It's abolished human responsibility, crippling the people they once set out to help. Christ has now gotten in the way of justice. So many institutions began by pointing people to God by their good works, and for a time, the world saw those good works, and they were glorifying God because of it. By the passing of time, the gospel was silenced, and their work, listen, their work was reduced to benevolence. It was reduced to medicine, education, science, and social justice. Anything that departs from the gospel is a reduction. It's a reduction. The one thing people need most in a hospital as they are passing from this life is to have the gospel of Christ preached to them. I've sat next to many people dying, and I'm sure many of you have. Instead of hearing the gospel, many of them are made comfortable on fentanyl, which is frequently nothing more than euthanization in the name of dignity. I like my comfort like anybody else, but they need the gospel. I can't say this enough. If we omit the gospel, people might get sober in our sobriety ministries, but if they die, they will be lost forever. Homeless people might be warmed and fed, but if they die without Christ, they cannot be recovered. Homosexuals may convert to heterosexual, but without Christ, it's all for nothing. A leftist might adopt conservative values, but perish, never being right with God. A rich man could start being generous, but if he never confesses Christ, God will never consider his benevolence, and he will perish forever. An educated man could obtain the finest education in the world, but if he does not know Christ, he will die a fool. We can house the poor, heal the sick, give sight to the blind. We can secure justice for the underprivileged, but if they do not confess Christ, they will go to hell and they'll never come back. Good works are not an end in themselves. They're meant to glorify God as we benefit others in order to create an opportunity to share the faith. That's what that's about. God must be in our good works or we've failed. We have not shined any light. We were lit, but we failed to emit. 
And there are no second chances to share the gospel with those that have expired. They're gone. They're gone. Our good works should never be disconnected from the gospel. But how about you? Like some of these institutions, did you start out motivated for Christ? You're on fire for his word, looking for opportunities to share the faith. He once inspired your every deed. He undergirded every motive. But more recently, or 5, 10, 20 years ago, Jesus started getting in the way of your dreams, your progress, your reputation, your job security, relationships. And eventually, you marginalized Christ. I hear that story all the time, all the time. You were salty, but you became impalatable. You were lit, but you fizzled out. You failed to give flavor to the world around you. You've concealed the light given to you. You may not even know how you got to this place, but here you are, and you don't feel blessed, and it's hard to rejoice, nearly impossible to be exceedingly glad. There's only really one remedy for it, and that's obedience to Christ. I don't have a 12-step program for you. Uh, I'm not smart enough to come up with them. You need to cry out to God in repentance and plead with him for grace, grace which will ignite you. But you've got to move. You've got to take some initiative. Another thing that should be pointed out in regard to good works is that Jesus is not teaching that we need to do good works in order to be saved. Many people have gathered that from the teachings of Jesus. Jesus instructs us to do good works because good works are good. They are glorifying to God. They're beneficial to humanity. No one can be saved by good works. But the truth is, all regenerate people do good works. When I say regenerate, I mean born again by the Spirit of God, someone who is saved. Okay? James says that faith without works is a faith that has no pulse. He says that it's dead. Good works do not save us, but they are signs of living faith. We might say that it's the pulse behind our faith. Let me give you some passages that Paul wrote to people Um, not just people, he actually wrote it to a people group that were lazy. Um, Quoting a pagan prophet, Paul said that um, uh, it has been said of the Cretans that they are lazy beasts and gluttons, or evil beasts and gluttons. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them. (laughs) You guys, I'm not rebuking you, I'm, I'm just, I just found it interesting. Paul could not say that today, by the way. This testimony is true, that Cretans are evil beasts and gluttons. He would be canceled, but <laughs> we're going to look at it here. The, the pastoral epistle to Titus uh, is interesting. It's not just a, a, instructing a pastor in regard to pastoral ministry, but it's, it's, it is, but it's training this pastor to teach these evil beasts and gluttons how to be productive in the kingdom of God. And it is the, the epistle of works. It's the epistle of works. I'm just going to give you a sampling, but there's more in this little book. There's only three chapters, and they're not even long chapters. Paul says of these people, he says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Titus 1.16. So he said that Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Titus 2.14. And Paul says, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Titus 3, 8. Does God love people? Yeah, he loves people. And finally, Paul says, 
And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs. Why? That they may not be unfruitful. There's more passages in Titus about good works. Good works are good. They glorify God. They create opportunities to preach the gospel. And they make us fruitful, fruitful. Let us not be unfruitful, but let us shine. Let us keep Christ at the forefront of everything we, we do. Paul said that Christ would have the preeminence among us. That means he has to be the thing that is out front all the time. Amen? Go ahead and stand up. We'll pray. I'll get you out of here. Next week, um, I'm still here next week, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next week, uh, we have a very challenging passage to discuss uh, the next couple verses in the text. And, uh, but I'm excited to get to them. I've been preparing them for them through the book of Hebrews and Galatians. And now I can come back to it and uh, we can discover what Jesus meant by what he said there. So let's pray. Well, Father, if we are indeed regenerate by your spirit, if we belong to you, we're salt and light. And Lord, there's, there's glory in it for you. And that should thrill us. That should invigorate us. That through good works, we have an opportunity to glorify you. Through good works, we establish rapport with people. We communicate the character of Christ to people. We create an opportunity to preach Christ to people. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have courage to be salt and light, that we would be filled with flavor, we would be palatable, that we would emit the light you've given us, Lord. I pray that we would do it so much that it would get us in trouble. And that, Lord, that would just fill us with joy that we've been counted worthy to suffer persecution for you. So, Lord, we always pray for opportunity. I'm beyond that. As soon as we leave these doors, there's opportunity. So, Lord, help us to just take all the opportunities that are there. Help us to be a people that are zealous for good works so that we might glorify you and preach the gospel. Lord, thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.